Welcome to the infected. Hi there, you're listening to The Infected, your weekly podcast where we discuss and play post-punk, dark wave, goth and much, much more music. As long as it has a shiny dark edge to it. In this episode, you and I have no less than six killer pieces of music that deserve your attention. We would like to tee off with a band that sounds as big as the Titanic. It is Dreamy Darkwave from sunny Arizona, USA. I'm talking about Lycia with their track Nothing.
So that was Lycia with the track Nothing. Piece of beauty, if you ask me. What did you think about it, Jeroen? I like it. It's a track that could have gone on for another four minutes, as far as I'm concerned. It has this uh, atmosphere, right? Sometimes you have songs that engage you because uh, you're you're interested and you're trying to figure out what the song is about. And you're trying to figure out where they're going and what the chord changes are. And it's very uh, uh, rational. And, and sometimes you have songs like these and they just take you away on, on a flow. And it, it just goes and it could go on forever as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Really nice song. Yeah, totally have to agree. I, I'm glad that you liked it. And uh, they have plenty of songs that go on much longer than four minutes. But as far as goth music goes, or if we can label it uh, like that, I know of nothing that compares to Lycia. Maybe Dead Can Dance, you know them, I think, from the 4AD record label. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Lycia is a band from Arizona, of all places. I would imagine this kind of music would be made in areas that have very long nights and winters, but no, it's from Arizona. (laughs) They started quite late in 1988 when the goth movement and post-punk maybe already uh, were past their peak. And the first album that they did of six tracks was called Wake. And that is also where this track is on. It was recorded on a four track tape recorder, very punky recording on, uh, on tape. The thing is, if that's your source material, you're gonna have a problem later on if you wanna upgrade or release CDs or anything. Yeah, the quality can never go up. The release of this album was on a cassette as well, on Orphanage Records in 1989. And it was made in the end of the vinyl area, 89, that's true. And CDs, they were, they were taking over vinyl releases, but, uh, but a cassette release in 1989, come on. <laughs> I own one of the 100 pressed reissues of Wake, uh, luckily, on red translucent vinyl. I posted it on uh, Insta today, Instagram. But it still sounds like a cassette tape, <laughs> what a shame. It's, uh, it's like a really good looking cassette tape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the, the material is great, but Yeah, you can hear about the sound quality. It's, uh, well, it's not perfect. But that concludes my uh, audio snob rant so far. Uh, Let me talk a bit uh, more about Lycia because Mike van Portvliet started Lycia as a solo project. And he had a few members come and go. They released great albums, especially in the early 90s. Yeah, they did a lot of touring as well. They had their peak in 1995 or maybe one or two years later. I can't be specific because I don't know. I was 16 at the time. But during uh, one of their tours, Mike has become very sick and uh, found out that he had late onset type 1 diabetes. That kind of sucks. And that pretty much derailed everything that they were doing back then. And the Lycia momentum was growing, but that stopped them from touring and made them more of a studio band from then on. And more bad luck was on the way because they saw a decline in the late 1990s because we're going to in the dance area around that time. So the music scene had become mostly about dance music and bands weren't as important anymore. There just wasn't that much interest in what they were doing anymore. But still, for over two decades, Lycia has been pioneers of dark wave and made their own reverb-drenched gothic take on dream pop because it sounds dreamy, like you uh, mentioned as well. I definitely feel that they are one of the best and boundary-pushing acts within the darker music genres. So uh, it's nice that we uh, can feature them in this episode. I really like the track and um, I, I've uh, heard a, a number of songs by Lycia. This is a shorter one, definitely, but typical for, for their type of work. 
somehow uh, there's al always a lot of variation in it. It never gets old and there's a lot in the archive. So yeah, nice track. Agreed. Thanks. Good opener. Got my uh, enthusiasm going to, uh, to move on. I'd like to uh, introduce a band called Of Blood and Wine. And uh, we're going to be playing their song called Feast of Blood. And this is also the Insta Outcast for this week. Of Blood and Wine is a new goth rock band. From their social media, it looks like they started out quite recently, about a year ago. They're a trio with Marquis Nosferatu on bass, Count Christopher on guitar, and Lord Crowbath is the singer. I love these names. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> perfect. Yeah, they're, they're, perfect. they're, they're definitely uh, going for the goth vibe here. Yeah, and also when you mentioned of blood and wine, I had to think about our last week's ending, yeah, yeah, yeah. where you poured us both a nice glass of warm blood, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how things come together sometimes. So this uh, Lloyd Crowbath, the singer, has an impressive vocal range. He can go from deep bubbly grunts to a falsetto able to deliver high notes with precision. It's very nice. And they describe their own style as old school goth and roll with heavy metal vibes. This song though is uh, a bit on the lighter side and it is called Feast of Blood. This is Lord Crowbath from Of Blood and Wine. You are listening to The Infected. The next song is called Feast of Blood.
Hey Jeroen, this is a, it's, it's a nice track. It carried me away to a different time maybe, to gothic medieval times by the voice of this guy and the music. That's romantic, isn't it, somehow? It is. So I like that those guys are really skilled. Um, I like the double bass uh, that the drummer uses sparingly, but uh, to great effect in this track. Uh, overall, it's uh, quite romantic, uh, sort of toned down. Most of their songs are, are heavier than this, mm -hmm. but I, I like this uh, for the atmosphere. I remember you also uh, told me and us when uh, Jan Willem was still part of this podcast that Finland featured the most metal bands per capita. And this is Finnish. <laughs> so yeah, so no surprise to find a, a heavy band from Finland. But uh, the real surprise to me is that this band, who have released several video clips on YouTube, are still almost undiscovered. We're talking about 350 followers on Instagram, about 75 Facebook followers and only 48 monthly listeners on Spotify in August. Soon this will change, as they're about to launch their debut EP, and these guys deserve more attention if you ask me. So if you liked what you heard, go check out their newest video clip for a song called The Smoke on YouTube. And um, keep an eye on these guys, because they really know how to play, and they're about uh, to uh, start uh, conquering the world. And just remember where you heard them first. Yeah. It sounds big. And uh, also the album is called It's Not Halloween, but we're approaching Halloween. Check them out. <laughs> Thanks for putting it on our radar. Let me bring it closer to home, but off the mainland to Britain. Last week, the day after we recorded our podcast, I went to a local thrift store, uh, which I do multiple times a week to score some DVDs. And to my surprise, I stumbled upon a DVD this time about Manchester's famous factory records. And it was called 24 Hour Party People. I didn't even know this existed. I'm sure you didn't either, Jeroen, or maybe you did, but... I, I wasn't aware of it, but um, thanks to your generosity, I've been able to uh, to see it. I just uh, finished it and I thought it was an awesome, awesome sort of what is, yeah, documentary, movie, whatever. It's a really nice yeah. story about how everything you know came together back in the 80s in Manchester. Exactly, yeah. It's, it, I have to agree, it's, it's a documentary, but it's reenacted in the form of a movie. Anyway, it, it, there are a lot of uh, accomplished actors in it as well. Actors that you know if you see it. And there's plenty of old footage that they use in the mix. The leading role and narrator of this uh, documentary is Steve Coogan. He's a British actor and comedian. And he's, uh, he's playing Tony Wilson. And Tony Wilson was the flamboyant founder of Factory Records. Tony was a journalist. He had a TV show about upcoming artists and music. The thing was, in 1976, there were only two or three people in the UK that decided what music would be featured on nationwide television. And these people didn't like punk music. And for one year long, the most exciting bands of the time were to be seen on a local channel, and that was Tony's show. Tony had his own show on a local channel. After this TV show quickly came to an end, Tony had a steady club night, the Factory Night, in the Russell Club in Manchester. And the opening nights of this club were legendary. They featured the most popular factory bands and the very first one, very first opening night, had only 40 people in the audience. But those 40 people turned out to be the most influential people in British post-punk history. After being inspired on this opening night, Tony later opened up his own club, the Hacienda, in which the bands from Factory would play and people could hang out. It was a disaster, because nobody came to that club. The Hacienda only became popular when the rave culture kicked off. 
but visitors were buying ecstasy and not drinks at the bar from the hacienda, so they still made no money. A fun fact, well, it's not that fun if you're a part of New Order, because all the revenue of the monster hit Blue Monday, you remember that? Yeah, definitely. Great song, great, great song. How can you not? Yeah, so that was a big hit, and all the money that was made by releasing that single went into paying the bills for the Hacienda Club with <laughs> 10,000 pounds a month and more, and New Order did not see a dime. Um, so this does not come as a surprise. In the end, Tony himself and Factory Records made little money, despite the enormous popularity and cultural significance of uh, both endeavors of the club and the record label. Also, it did not help that Tony didn't actually have contracts with the bands that uh, would tie them to the label. Basically, everybody was free to fuck off and do something else whenever they wanted. It was about total artistic freedom in Factory Records. And they didn't care that Factory wasn't making money. It was about being connected to the great bands that they featured and the love for Manchester. The biggest band on the label was Joy Division, but there were many, many others that were making great music. I never knew this, by the way, but the band name Joy Division comes from a group of women with whom German SS officers would make 100% Aryan babies. <laughs> yeah, it's quite sick. That group of women was called Joy Division. And the band and Tony were accused of being Nazis, but they stated, well, Joy Division does sound happy, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think he also said they also had a band called the Ruti Column in the stable and actually the Duruti column is the uh, the biggest march of anti-fascists in Spain. So I think his defense was yes, we of course we have these these names um, but we have them from both the left and the right side of the spectrum. That was a good one. Nice nice addition <laughs> even. I didn't I didn't even pick up on that in the uh, in the documentary. They also had the Happy Mondays talking about happy happy the Happy Mondays are named in the same sentence as Joy Division as most influential acts on Factory Records by Tony Wilson himself. They were bridging the post-punk era into the 90s, these guys. The Ryder brothers, they were fucking crazy, 200% rock and roll, yeah. uh, heavy drug addicts, especially Sean and Jeroen, the Dove incident. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah? yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us about it. They were fucking crazy, these guys. So for for, yeah. for shits and giggles or for, for, for kicks, the Ryder brothers would go up to the roof of a large apartment building and then start uh, handing out bread, feeding the doves. But they would have poisoned it before with red poison, so um, they wanted to see how long <laughs> the pigeons would be able to fly. So after feeding them, they scared them off the roof. So then they stood on the roof and they watched the dead doves rain down on them. Terrible, terrible scene. Yes, rats with wings that they yeah, regarded yeah. Terrible them Terrible scene, yeah. but yeah, those guys are fucking crazy, man. And really, 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 really fun music though to listen to. Yeah, it is. It's creative. They were bridging the, the post-punk era into the 90s of rave. And in this period, Manchester was transformed into Madchester. People were applauding the DJ, the medium, uh, not the bands anymore that much. I first thought to pick a track by the Happy Mondays. There was also a Belgian and Dutch extension, by the way, of Factory Records, Factory Benelux. And I picked one of the first three singles that they put out on the Benelux label. The Infected Trifactor. In the trifecta, you have about 10 minutes to figure out what the connection between the next three songs is. After the next three songs, we will tell you more details about the other two tracks. Then we will also tell you what the connection between these songs is. Try and see if you can figure it out before the music ends. Haunted by Section 25. 
Driving in your car Oh, please don't 
Cause it's not my home, it's their home and I'm welcome no more And if a double-decker bus crashes into us To die by your side is such a heavenly way to die And if a ten-tongue So welcome to the other side, you've made it through the trifecta. We've played two songs for you after the one uh, that we initially uh, announced. The songs you heard were songs by The Smiths and ABC. The second song was The Look of Love Part 1 by ABC. So this is a track from 1982. And according to ABC lead singer Martin Fry, it is an autobiographical song about losing love. This song is genuinely about the moment you get your teeth kicked in by someone you love fucking off. You feel like shit, but you have to search for some sort of meaning in your life. You can also hear Fry mention his own forename in his lyrics when he sings, They say, Martin, maybe one day you'll find true love. So, since the lyrics were inspired by Fry's real-life breakup, perfectionist producer Trevor Horn insisted that the female voice replying goodbye to Fry in the second verse mm -hmm. should be the actual woman in the relationship who had left him. Wow. <laughs> 
So he made him look up this girl who dumped him and get her to the studio to say just a single word goodbye to make the song complete. <laughs> How about that? Well, Jeroen, this is, this is again a great example of why I love making this podcast with you because this is something I would never picked out otherwise. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It's, it's a great. great story, right? Every time yeah, now that is. you'll hear this one word goodbye, <laughs> you'll get a smile on your face. So the song actually was inspired by Smokey Robinson. Obviously, ABC were big uh, Smokey Robinson fans. Uh, but in the 1971 song, I Don't Blame You At All, Smokey Robinson sings, What I thought was the look of love was only hurt in disguise. Mm. Uh, so the look of love is from that sentence. And actually, the whole idea for this uh, song was basically the therapy going on in Martin Fry's head is listening to... Uh, to Smokey, and then he came up with this song. Cool. Smokey Robinson was also the big influence for the Rolling Stones, I believe, for Keith at least, right? Yeah, definitely, it was one of his uh, of his heroes. So this song is called the, the Look of Love Part 1, and on the album you'll also find the, the Look of Love Part 4. I noticed, it's a very brief one. You know, being me, I then start to figure out, try to figure out what happened to parts 2 and 3. Uh, well, there is a part two and three, and you can only find them on the 12-inch single, together with part one and four. Mm. Clever marketing for the 12-inch. Don't just buy the album, you'll also have to buy the 12-inch as well, if you want to have the complete series of this look of love. And then after you know selling uh, quite a number of these 12-inch singles, or indeed another remix, the look of love part five. Okay. And this one he did with the Fairlight synthesizer, and this 12-inch single, which was issued to club DJs, just might have been the first ever pop song being remixed with scratching and was among the earliest remixes to be based upon samples. Cool. So again, groundbreaking work here by, uh, by Trevor Horn and a, a smooth song by ABC. Martin Fry being born in uh, Trafford in Manchester. Obviously he, he was in, in London in the studio for recording. So I was wondering whether uh, he would have had to drive back to Manchester to pick up his ex-girlfriend and drive her back to London just to have her say that one word. <laughs> 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 Things I wonder about, right? Yeah. yeah. So he was also, yeah. by the way, the guy that played Max Headroom in the clip for Paranoimia by Art of Noise. Yes. When we were in the age of where people tried to make music that sounded like it was made by computers, they actually turned Martin Fry into sort of the first ever AI on television. He was made to look like a robot while he was actually yeah, it just... It looked a, quite cool. Yeah, it was looked definitely... I'll link in the video clip for Paranoimia uh, in the show notes for people to see on our website, theinfected.nl. Awesome. Are you an ABC fan yourself? I know it's, uh, it's, it's slightly less dark than what we usually play, but uh, can, you, can you stand, can you bear this sort of lightness? Yeah, absolutely. First and foremost, I'm a fan of uh, most music that went out in the 80s. It's a track that uh, I like listening to. It's in my 80s list and uh, I didn't know much about it, so you, you just gave it an extra dimension, but I definitely like this. And um, the stuff that we feature is usually uh, with a dark edge, as you just mentioned, but uh, throw this in once in a while, <laughs> love it. Yeah, I thought we could um, have a happy song in between the two, uh, which were a bit more grim, uh, the two other elements of our trifecta. So the last song was uh, The Smiths, with a song called There's a Light That Never Goes Out. So this is from 1986. And in the song we find frontman Morrissey in the passenger seat of a potential romantic partner's car. And he begs the driver, don't drop me home. Whatever you do, don't drop me home. In fact, Morrissey is so captivated by his company that he says that he would not care if a double-decker bus crashed into them. To die by the side of his sweetheart would be such a heavenly way to die. That's romantic. Yeah, it's very romantic. Actually, uh, this, this comes from uh, a very specific uh, influence. Morrissey idolized James Dean. And this is a narrative straight from the 1955 James Dean film Rebel Without the Cause. 
just picked it out of my record cabinet. Now my record cabinet. There's, those are all gone. I have DVDs these days. It's a great movie. Rebel Without a Cause. Keep talking. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, no, no problem. So, um, a fun thing is the intro. And uh, Johnny Marr, the guitarist, has a, has a little story about that. There's a little in-joke here, just to illustrate how intellectual I was getting. So at this time, everyone was into the Velvet Underground. And the Velvet Underground stole the intro to There She Goes Again from the Rolling Stones' version of Hitchhike, which was actually a Marvin Gaye song. And I just wanted to put that in to see whether the press would say, oh, he's quoting the Velvet Underground. Because I knew that I was smarter than that. I was listening to what the Velvet Underground were listening to. I can imagine that this is hard to uh, sort of think uh, how all of that must have sounded. So for comparison, I've put the intros of Marvin Gaye, the Stones and Velvet Underground all in one single track, together with uh, the intro for this song by The Smiths, so you can hear what Johnny Marr is on about. And there you have it. So you hear Marvin Gaye, The Stones, The Velvet Underground, and finally The Smiths back to back. And this is really what Johnny Marr was talking about, the kind of guitar player that he is. He's uh, always been very cerebral, a very clever and smart guitar player who loves to make all kinds of references and musical quotes in his music. Very worthwhile to listen to. Johnny Marr gives this tunes kind of a light feel, even though the topics are quite heavy and um, it, there's many notes going around, there's a lot going on. It's a very nice contrast, isn't it, uh, with him and Morrissey. There's a lot of melancholy and at the same time uh, the music remains sort of light and open, that's very nice. And they didn't talk about it very much either, that just sort of happened. Johnny Marr remembers that this song was actually recorded in 40 minutes. When we all got together, he says, one, two, three, four. It was the first time all four of us had heard what it would sound like, and it was just magical. You can hear synthesizers, actually, in the back of the song as well. And uh, Morrissey didn't want to use a synthesized string section, uh, but they had no money to do it in another way, so eventually he came around and he agreed to having the synths in there. A great band from Manchester, yet missing on Manchester's famous factory label that you were just talking about. Because back in 1983, both Tony Wilson of Factory, as well as New Order producer Rob Gretton agreed that the Smiths demo was crap. So, the Smiths ended up with a London-based Rough Trade Records label. They did stay real Mancunians right until the end though. Many of their songs feature references to their hometown. For instance, their last album, Strange Ways Here We Come, is actually named after Manchester's prison which was called Strange Ways back then in the 80s. Gives, you, <laughs> gives a new meaning to the, uh, to the album title, Strange Ways, here we come. And there we have it, obviously. Um, if you haven't figured it out by now, the trifecta theme this week uh, was Manchester. Bands from Manchester, hailing from Manchester, the Manchester music scene from Martin Fry. Yes. I uh, hope you picked up on that. If not, uh, now you know uh, where all this good stuff uh, was coming from. Yeah. It uh, was a nice one. I think it's also nice to play three tracks and then uh, discuss them afterwards. I got I got one more left. It's a dreamy one. It's from Pink Industry. And I suggest we first listen to it and then uh, we can discuss it a little bit and then we're off to the end. So here is Pink Industry with the song What I Wouldn't Give from 1985.
so pink industry yes never heard of this act me um, neither in my life <laughs> i don't know how you do it but you keep coming up with these things that i again uh, really love this song luckily i already found it a couple of days ago when i was checking out the playlist for tonight and i've been playing it on repeat because this is uh, actually a great song yeah and um i was i was fascinated with the the use of instruments flutes in there and the whole atmosphere and the fact that she was sort of um you know longing for this lover that apparently has left her and um uh, it's uh, very atmospheric again uh, and it's a beautiful song man i can't remember how i picked this up it must be because of another mix or radio show or maybe even a spotify suggestion but the first thing that i wrote down when listening to this that it um, it sounds quite modern it's made in 1985 but def- damn it could have just been made 2015 or uh, this year as a matter of fact yeah absolutely agree the lyrics of Pink Industry in this song. Oh, what I wouldn't give to feel your presence here. There's my Smith's tapes you never wanted to hear. Throw them away, Morrissey in a bin, if it would bring you back again. That's amazing, right? Also, it's a very big sacrifice to make to, to completely, you know, throw away the Smiths and all of Morrissey just to get your lover back. I mean, there's more fish in the ocean, right? How can you do that? Yes, <laughs> picking this right after the Smiths we just played is uh, purely coincidental because a little bit of background on Pink Industry. I picked this track because it sounded great and moody for uh, for a last one. Uh, but Jane Casey is the singer of this band and she was the leading figure in three successful Liverpool bands. So not Manchester, but Liverpool this time, among others, big in Japan. And they had a few hits, I believe, in the 80s and Pink Military, and then she was in Pink Industry. So she did three bands. And Big in Japan was briefly around during the first punk explosion, and they left a mark, a small mark nevertheless, with a theatrical sense of humor in their music that was quite unusual at the time. After the band broke up, Casey went on to Pink Military and then Pink Industry. And together with Ambrose Reynolds, who was also an early member of Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Oh, really? And a fun trivial fact, um, did you know that the singer of Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Holly Johnson, we just uh, discussed him last week yep. or the week before, right? He first wanted to call the band Holly Cost. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Yeah, Holly That's Cost. Bad. That's bad. That's terrible. What the actual Oh, fuck? man. Yeah, I'm not joking. So luckily, Ambrose's eyes wandered off to a poster of Frank Sinatra on the wall. It was from the book Rock Dreams. And while Ambrose reads the title, he said, jokingly, we could just as well call the band Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I don't care. And they went with that name, luckily. Back to Pink Industry, because we uh, should do this song justice by talking a little bit about it. Jane Casey has a unique voice. Uh, I'm sure you heard. In fact, they may well have been too much ahead of their time. Yeah, they never got much attention or recognition for that matter. After the demise of Pink Industry, Jane Casey took her distance from the music scene and got involved in Arts Center Liverpool. But this, there's, a, there's a lot of great music out there and, and you have a talent for picking stuff that I've never heard before, so that's great. And the fun thing is that even with the stuff that we know, uh, once you dive into it, you somehow always seem to be able to turn up something new about the song, even if it's familiar. And that's fun too, right? Yeah, I think so too. So this is the end of a uh, power-packed episode, holy mac. I did not hear one filler track but all great ones again Jeroen and that's not the first episode that we did but we still come up with 
really, really great music as every week. It was great fun making this episode together with you, Gov. Thanks a lot. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> I just hope that our listeners liked this episode as well. So let us know how you liked it and let us know which song you would like to hear on the show. Just use the contact form on our awesome site at www.theinfected.nl. But wait, there's more. Care for a t-shirt, a cap or a stylish coffin for your iPhone? You will find our merchandise at theinfected.nl. And hey, pshht. A little secret for you, our listeners. Use the discount code INFECTME for free shipping. Free shipping on our merch, man. We like a deal in the Netherlands. On theinfected.nl we offer custom Spotify playlists and a fine collection of all the songs played on the show. The site also has exclusive interviews and show notes with the stories and relevant links. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe. And while you're at it, help us out with a nice rating on Spotify, Google or iTunes. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. We must be off. It's time to feed the bats. They used to roam free, but somehow people have become quite wary of bats lately. Sayonara, children of the night. The, 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 the whole idea of actually putting out, of actually creating a piece of music with some genius musicians, and then it, this being bought in a shop by somebody, seemed to us, all of us, to be somehow a sacred thing. And it was like, well, this is such, you know, what a privilege to be doing this. So we'll, we'll do it as well as we can.